Hi, and welcome to a special series and a special episode of The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. And this is the finale of our five-week mini-series, Eastern Africa's Jihadis, produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation, or FES. Today we're trying something a bit different. We've brought on a fantastic and timely panel to discuss how the global war on terror has shaped the trajectory of the region in the past 20 years and where it all heads from here. With us, we have Mary Harper, Africa editor at the BBC and author of two books on Somalia, including her most recent on Al-Shabaab, Michael Waldemariam, a professor and director of the African Studies Center at Boston University, and Marithi Mutiga, Crisis Group's Horn of Africa director. Thanks to all of you for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, good to be with you. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Now, we've done a little series here looking at the current state of jihadism in East Africa and a bit of its history. When we planned this, uh, we didn't know we'd have such a dramatic backdrop as we've gotten with Afghanistan to sort of mark this moment. But as I was preparing this and looking back, I have to say I I didn't quite realize how much, you know, this 20-year period has really shaped Uh, the region country by country. When you go through from Sudan and the birth of South Sudan to Eritrea and Ethiopia to Kenya and Uganda and, of course, Somalia, you know, it's difficult to find a country whose fate wasn't drastically affected by what happened on 9-11 and then, of course, subsequently. So, Mary, I'm going to start with you. We're fortunate to have you as you've been covering this region for so long. And we've been in this 9-11 era for you know, such a long time that it's difficult to really think back before then sometimes. So can can you help us out? What did the U.S. approach in the region look like before 9-11? And then how did you really see it shift? Sure. I mean, what we mustn't forget is that before 9-11 in the U.S., there were very big al-Qaeda attacks in East Africa. The U.S. embassies in Tanzania and in Kenya were hit by al-Qaeda in 1998, leading to very large amount of deaths. So in some ways, East Africa, the Horn of Africa, was already primed for this. Also, Osama bin Laden had uh, for some time spent time in Sudan uh, in, in the 1990s. So in some ways, the kind of groundwork was already done. But then obviously, when 9-11 happened and the world's foremost superpower was struck directly, uh, this then kind of changed things uh, on the ground in uh, the Horn of Africa and East Africa once again. And uh, George Bush, very soon afterwards, pointed the finger, at least at a Somali uh, money transfer company, blaming it for being a, a, a major source of funding for al-Qaeda. So I think there there is a kind of before and an after story in terms of how those events of 9-11 hit Africa, because it was already being affected and continues to be affected to this day. Now, Marithi, you were, of course, in Nairobi during those events in the 90s. I'm just wondering if you can reflect on that pre-9-11 period Um, And then also, how has life since changed? Thanks, Alan. And I think Mary makes a very good point. 
Uh, I would go even further back that unhappily for this region, jihadism has been a part of life for a very long time. Um, you had in the late 80s members, especially of Al-Itihad al-Islami, this group in Somalia moving to the mountains of Afghanistan to train partly with uh, Bin Laden's group. But then also you had recruits from places like Sudan to a lesser degree, the Kenyan coast and Tanzania. And then, as Mary rightly pointed out, a hinge point was Bin Laden moving to Sudan in the early 90s. And in that period then, you had a, a chain of events that touched this, this region very, very significantly. You had, for example, a few of Bin Laden's early recruits moving to Somalia, training some of the people involved in the Black Hawk Down uh, episode. You had the horrific uh, attacks uh, in Nairobi on August 7th. I was in high school at that time. My high school had just closed and some of my classmates were actually right outside the bomb, the, the embassy when the bomb went off. Um, it was a period of profound shock, a period of profound confusion. Nobody had heard of Al-Qaeda. How has it changed the region? I would say that in the first phase, people saw it as an external problem. But then the global war on terror, so-called, uh, began. Many of the governments in this part of the world enlisted themselves, and then it became a war in which civilians were paying an incredible price. Um, I don't remember ever encountering security guards going into supermarkets, into banks, into various shops or, or malls in Nairobi. I was very stunned a couple of years ago to see that the biggest private sector employer in the country is not somewhere in agriculture, is not in tourism, it's actually private security companies. You see CCTV everywhere, the airport is ringed by security. Life has changed very substantially. And of course, we can discuss further what, what mistakes were made to get to this point. Michael, I'm going to go over to you. And I'm wondering, besides any reflections you might have on what Mary and Marithi said, uh, when you think of what changed in the equation after 9-11 for the U.S., um, what exactly did that look like? And as Marithi mentions, how did regional governments get sucked in as well? Yeah, so, so I would say that, that one would be hard-pressed to find sort of a clear strategic line from the United States or Western countries towards the horn in the pre-9-11, this period from the end of the Cold War till 9-11. I mean, counterterrorism certainly wasn't a huge issue. There was a lot of focus on humanitarian concerns. I mean, see the US-UN intervention in Somalia in the 1990s. I think humanitarianism was, was the big impetus there. But but I think as, as Maruthi and, and Mary have noted, there were I mean, there, there were obviously concerns about jihadist networks in the region, and much of that centered on, on, on the role of Sudan in facilitating some of those networks. So in the 1990s, the United States relationship with Sudan really hits rock bottom because of Khartoum's kind of involvement uh, with these networks. And the United States begins to support, in a strategic sense, a kind of alliance in the region to contain Sudan. I think it's important to mention this. So Uganda... Uh, Ethiopia and and Eritrea, and so that you know, to the degree that counterterrorism matters in this period in the 1990s, it's it's part and parcel of the strategic um, containment of Sudan. Um, but obviously, after 9/11, I think it's fair to say that from the perspective of Western countries, counterterrorism becomes sort of the central strategic interest uh, for the United States and and Europeans, European partners. Um, uh, in the Horn of Africa. And I think we'll get into this more, but a number of countries in the region 
uh, recognized that fact and, and, and sought to instrumentalize the war on terror uh, for their own, their own political gain, uh, in particular for the consolidation of political power at home. Thanks, Michael. And of course, uh, that strategy you mentioned about containing Sudan uh, from the U.S., also in practice, bolstered the SPLA rebellion in the South with, of course, major consequences later. Um, that, that segues me pretty well to um, taking us into a bit more of these specifics rather than the broad scope. Um, of course, I think when people think of the war on terror in this region, they often think of Somalia first. But I'm actually going to first go and ask about Sudan, which we've already started talking about, because I think in some ways, uh, Sudan was the place where perhaps the earliest effects of this big overall change uh, was perhaps most felt. Now, I'm going to punt this one over to you, Marithi. Obviously, Sudan was already on the state sponsor of terror when 9-11 happened. But then how did 9-11 and the events that follow really change the direction of that country, you know, really significantly? Um, yes. So, of course, we have to remember that the coup in 1989 that brought uh, Omar al-Bashir in power was very much supported by an Islamist group that was, was further to the right of people like Bashir. And so he felt under pressure to prove his, his Islamist credentials. Of course, then um, there was a degree to which he became host to a number of groups that were just more than Islamist, were perhaps more Salafi jihadist. And then when 911 happened, I think Bashir saw a threat to his survival. Um, I think the most important development was the ouster of Saddam Hussein just two years later. He saw this as, as an existential threat. So while we should not overstate this, it's important to note that Bashir was already under very significant cross-party pressure over in DC because of the abuses in Darfur. Uh, but for the to ensure the survival of his regime, he began to offer substantial counterterrorism cooperation uh, to the U.S. Uh, and in this period when he was in a very weak position, then, of course, we know that the long struggle for South Sudanese independence had been bubbling for a long time. They were demanding a referendum on secession. And I think in that weak moment, it's very important to recognize what a massive concession it was, even for a weak Khartoum, to agree to the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Uh, but they did. And I think that's one of the significant developments that took place in the region. The fact that these autocrats saw that to survive, they had to enlist somehow in the so-called war against terror, uh, but also very significant de domestic developments happened in that period. Mm. And, and Mary, um, of course, you've, you've written about how 9-11 has not only changed the fate of Somalia, um, but even... Uh, you wrote once has even rewrote Somalia's history in a way. Um, I'm wondering, what did you mean by that? And maybe can you just remind our listeners and walk us through how the how the U.S. approach and, and even regional approach uh, that took place after 9-11, how it's led us to the current situation in Somalia today? I don't want to oversimplify, but what I argued in, in my book, which is called Getting Somalia Wrong, so that might give you a hint, is that after 9-11, Somalia was associated with this whole very extreme, violent uh, branch of Islamism. And to put it sort of simply, during that time, there were a bunch of warlords who were causing havoc in Somalia and controlling different bits of the territory, even different bits of the capital, Mogadishu. And they were backed uh, in part by, by the CIA 
because they said that they, they were countering an Islamist threat. And then much to everybody's surprise, this group of Sharia courts, which had been providing security in some parts of the country and really changing things, they actually overthrew these warlords and came to some kind of power, at least in the capital Mogadishu and other parts of south and central Somalia. Then what happened uh, was that they did, uh, without trying to kind of paint too bright a picture on them, but they did dramatically improve security and made people's lives much more predictable. But after just six months of them being in power, uh, the Americans and the Ethiopians uh, and, and a few others, they basically labelled this Islamic Courts Union, as it was called, as a sort of Al-Qaeda affiliate uh, having sympathy with violent Islam, and they bombed them out of existence. And what happened was that the sort of armed uh, youth wing that had been associated with the courts, they disappeared into the bush, but re-emerged as al-Shabaab. And to this day, it uh, controls vast swathes of the country and attacks uh, towns and cities that are officially controlled by the government and its allies. So, I mean, it is oversimplistic to say that American policy created al-Shabaab, a little bit like some argue that American policy created the Taliban in Afghanistan. But there was definitely a link uh, bet between American policy and the flourishing of al-Shabaab. Thanks, Mary. Michael, can you also uh, expand a bit more on how regional countries were able, as you mentioned, to instrumentalize this, this war on terror and play their own role? I mean, I think with the benefit of hindsight and sort of taking a broad view, and obviously there's country by country variation here, I, I think we can say that the war on terrorism has mostly had negative uh, impacts on democracy and governance uh, in the Horn of Africa. And, and I think they are, there, were, there are a couple of mechanisms at work here. You know, the first is that the United States and other Western countries in this period were oftentimes very reluctant uh, to push hard on sort of issues of democracy and governance with a number of countries in the region, uh, so as not to jeopardize uh, their counterterrorism partnerships. Um, so, you know, I think the classic cases of this would, would be Uganda, um, Ethiopia under the EPRDF, uh, Djibouti. I think it's also the case that authoritarians, autocrats in the region have instrumentalized the war on terror for the purposes of, of regime maintenance uh, through access to external security assistance uh, by uh, sort of very effectively blurring the line politically and legally between uh, terrorism and, and what you know otherwise might be considered legitimate political activity. And then I think, you know, I'll maybe leave it here. I think the war on terror frame offered sort of new moral and legal justifications for the use of specific coercive tools by, by governments in the region. I'm thinking about extrajudicial assassinations, rendition, torture, surveillance. I don't think these governments use these tools because of the war on terror. These tools were in existence before that, but it did provide sort of new moral and legal justifications for their deployment. Yeah, I just I just wanted to say a bit more about Ethiopia, especially what's happening with Ethiopia at the moment, because uh, for years, for for years and years, uh, Ethiopia was considered by, by the US principally and other Western powers as being its kind of key ally in, in the war on terror in the eastern horn of Africa. It was the kind of bulwark against the threat. And what I'm, I'm really fascinated to 
see what happens now. Uh, you look at the way that the US is speaking to Ethiopia in terms of the war that's going on in the Tigray region and beyond. Uh, it's like, does it still, I mean, how, how concerned is it that it's basically lost Ethiopia as that uh, strong man in the region? Uh, because at the moment, it, you know, it's coming down pretty hard on the Abbey government in terms of human rights abuses and blockading of aid. And is it sitting there measuring, thinking, oh, we have to be careful, we can't be too hard on them because we need them as our kind of frontline state. It's difficult to work it out. And then obviously, with all the chaos that's going on in Ethiopia, I'm sure Al-Shabaab, in fact, I spoke to Al-Shabaab about this, and I said, are you going to take advantage of that and strike your main enemy, as you've always described it? And the Al-Shabaab uh, official who I was speaking to was kind of laughing. He said, we don't need to attack them now. You know, we could attack them whenever we want, but they're destroying themselves. So we're just sitting on the sidelines and watching Ethiopia fall apart. Um, you know, he was kind of rubbing his hands in glee about this. But you, you do really wonder how this is going to change the whole complexion and nature of the sort of Islamist versus kind of non-Islamist states uh, in, in the region. It, it's going to be really interesting and disturbing to see how that unfolds. Yeah, th thanks, Mary. Those are These are all really fascinating reflections. And actually, these reflections on Ethiopia... And, you know, and, and the role of the war on terror, in some ways, the through lines there to the current war in Tigray just speaks to kind of how it really has seeped into all corners in, in a way that you might not expect. I also always wonder about the sort of counterfactual when it comes to, to Eritrea, um, you know, and the way that the Addis Ababa regime was able to help isolate, you know, its, its enemy in Asmara because of uh, Eritrea's uh, support to al-Shabaab and the way that that got caught up in this war on terror as well. Marithi, I wanted to, to go to you also to, to reflect on these, but also if you could speak a bit how, you know, other quote-unquote allies or, or partners of of the U.S. in the uh, the war in Somalia, you know, how they were also able to instrumentalize especially uh, Nairobi and Kampala in terms of in terms of their own interests. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Alan. Just, just a very quick caveat that um, I think while Meles uh, Zenawi, the former prime minister of Ethiopia, certainly saw an opportunity to ease the Western pressure that was piled on Addis Ababa following the very bloody uh, aftermath of the 2005 election, I think just to be fair, it's also important to note that the Ethiopians partly acted out of their national interest. It's very important to say that, you know, you can't overstate how scarred Ethiopia was by Somalia's irredentist wars uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so, you know, they partly worried about an Islamist government that might again be irredentist in Mogadishu. But of course, Meles did instrumentalize it. You know, he called it Africa's Taliban and whatnot. And in fact, it worked. It is the pressure on Ethiopia. On the wider East Africa, the reverberations continue for sure. Today, the Tanzanian opposition leader Freeman Bowe is spending his second month in jail charged with terrorism, all because he demanded constitutional change. The Ugandans were very shrewd. Of course, uh, Yoweri Museveni is a past master at this sort of activity. Um, he sent his troops into Somalia in the late 2000s, 
partly because you know he was under very significant domestic pressure of course we should not uh, understand the fact that they made very huge sacrifices and actually succeeded in pushing al-shabab from having effective control of mogadishu but this did in fact is the pressure or on kampala it it very much restored museveni's place as a very important um partner to the west and according to his domestic critics it was a cynical deployment that that worked in multiple strands you know you have to remember these deployments are also quite lucrative to be honest you know very substantial stipends you keep a very large army busy and you take care of domestic opponents by claiming you're a western ally i think the kenyan case is very interesting um the kenyans decided that al shabab was becoming an intolerable threat in northern kenya this is still debatable but um they intervened in somalia in in 2011 uh, but in a way that has ended up re- redounding on kenya in very negative ways you've had waves of attacks in a country that doesn't have the same security apparatus that ethiopia had or that uganda boasts today you've had tensions between muslims and christians partly because al shabab tried to attack churches to divide society you had a very bad effect on tourism and so i think kenya has been one of the worst affected countries uh, partly because it was really a mistake for the kenyans uh, to intervene militarily while knowing that they don't have the domestic capability to take care of security Mm. And and quickly Marifi um before I move on I'm I'm just wondering we've talked a lot about you know what the US got uh wrong I'm wondering do you think the US got uh anything right um in 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 the way it it went about after 9/11 in this region Um I would, I would say that it's it's often sometimes um simplistic to uh, always criticize the military fast method I think to a certain degree when Al Shabab began to ally openly with al qaeda it declared its allegiance so the initial intervention was very wrong to a certain degree the later american support to help uh, you know as they call it degrade al shabab's capacities was probably quite effective only that like in many places it, there was no strategy of what would replace al shabab when it was pushed out for example of urban areas there was no plan to stand up domestic capacity to um govern um uh, some of those areas uh, and so while some of the military interventions may have given some space to domestic um uh, government actors i think the problem was there was an absence of a strategy of what would replace the militants when they were pushed out and of course in the event they quickly came back as Mary has recorded and now are able to uh, you know employ their taxation methods almost across the country. Mm. Uh, great thanks everyone I think that gave us a very broad tour of uh, many complex situations. Michael I'm going to give you the the last word and then I'll and then I'll take us to um to discussing looking ahead a bit more rather than just looking backwards. Mary makes a a, a really interesting point. You know it's interesting to me I I wonder if um i guess what you could describe as a very sort of tough us line on ethiopia would have been possible um in 2005 2006 2007 and i think in an interesting way uh you know the us's approach to the crisis in ethiopia particularly the conflict in tigray tells us something about the way in which the war on terror frame 
has declined in relevance from the perspective of the United States and its Western partners. It's clearly not at, at the center of the conversation for U.S. policymakers in a way that it was 10 years ago. And I think that's that's something that's interesting to, to acknowledge. You, know, you mentioned the case of Eritrea. I mean, that's kind of a unique, you know, the impacts of the war on terrorism on, on Eritrea um, you know, were unique. Obviously, it, it fed into its international isolation, Ethiopian Eritrea, had a rivalry that really, really emerged in a significant way in 1998 over border and other issues. Um, and effectively, what happened as a byproduct of the war on terror is that the United States intentionally, unintentionally uh, began to favor uh, Ethiopia uh, in the context of that rivalry, in large measure because Ethiopia was such a crucial counterterrorism partner in Somalia. And so that led to a kind of chain of, of developments um, in which relations between the United States and Eritrea got much worse, uh, which then sort of paved the way for Eritrea's uh, international isolation in fora uh, like the United Nations Security Council. Just a final point uh, uh, that, you know, an issue that Mariti talked on, sort of what, you know, successes in terms of sort of the war on terror in this region um, and sort of Western policy, because um, we have we have talked a lot about the negative. I mean, I think if you look at look at it from a sort of narrow, uh, sort of national interest perspective, there haven't been attacks on the U.S. homeland from groups emanating in this region in the last twenty years, at least, and uh, you know, attacks on sort of Western assets in the region. Hmm. All right, thanks everyone. So, Mary, I'm going to come back to you and do a bit of a, a segue. Um, as I as I mentioned at the start of our conversation, and has been evident throughout this mini series we're doing on jihadism. You know, we couldn't have uh, had more dramatic events, I think, to mark this 20 years as what we've seen out of Afghanistan. Um, and so, it's difficult to sort of look ahead without you know reflecting on on what's happened in Afghanistan. Um, Mary, you've, you know, written extensively about Al-Shabaab. As you've been watching the events in Afghanistan and, and how that played out, you know, how do you think this will shift both the conversation, but also actually the events, you know, future events in Somalia? And how has this all looked to Al-Shabaab? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Al-Shabaab, from what I understand, is pretty thrilled uh, that um the Taliban have achieved what they have achieved. And in some sense, uh, there are some signs that it's given al-Shabaab uh, a bit of a momentum in terms of it, its activities on, on the ground, even though it's a bit too early to say uh, how how successful al-Shabaab is going to be with this kind of injection of, of energy and, um, I suppose, optimism on, on their part. Uh, I often sort of think to myself... What would happen if al-Shabaab took over in Somalia? Because they do govern, uh, this is probably quite a controversial thing to say, but they do govern better in many ways than the alternatives that are trying to exert any kind of authority in Somali's regions or, or, or federally. And uh, the population of Somalia, even if they don't like a lot of what al-Shabaab stands for, they say, well, at least... Uh, in al-Shabaab areas, there's a degree of predictability, there isn't corruption, legal cases get sorted out quite soon, uh, taxation is efficient, and uh, at least some of the taxation goes towards kind of community projects. I, in fact, know, know Somalis who've sent their families out of so-called government-controlled areas into al-Shabaab areas because they say, actually, it's safer for them there as long as they abide by the rules. And... Uh, 
obviously the the the, the west and and uh, the somali uh, authorities in Mogadishu and and in the regions obviously they they would fundamentally disagree and say it would be an idea of hell if al shabab took over but maybe you know we don't know how the taliban is going to perform this time we don't know exactly how severe they're going to be but maybe if if the taliban establish a government that is obviously going to be repressive uh, and uh, sort of anathema to a lot of what the west stands for maybe it isn't going to be as bad as as it was and as bad as people imagine and maybe that will give those that believe that the only way that Somalia is going to get sorted out to any extent at all is uh, to have some kind of deal with al-Shabaab, if al-Shabaab is prepared to accept that, that, that there would have to be negotiations and uh, eventually al-Shabaab would have to be part of the political structure. Um, so I, th- I think it's going to be really interesting, number one, to see what happens in Afghanistan under the Taliban and whether that can teach any lessons about some sort of future involvement of al-Shabaab in the governance of Somalia, the sort of formal recognised governance, governance of Somalia, and also to see whether al-Shabaab takes more inspiration, not only militarily, but also in terms of uh, establishing some kind of government, which is what it sees it has already, it says, it tells me it has a parallel shadow government in Somalia, and I think that's true. Um, and, and, and what kind of inspiration it will take from the Taliban now being the government rather than the shadow government. Mm. Yeah, it, it really does feel like a, a chapter in contemporary history just, just turned, and this is all so very interesting and all, in some ways, very new, These these the conversations going along these lines. Marithi, um, also, I'm, I'm wondering if you can... Uh, talk us through maybe how how regional leaders you think have been uh, viewing what's been going on in Afghanistan. Yeah, so just to echo Mary's points, um, my colleagues and I have been following Al Shabab's websites, and you'll see that every single day since mid July, the top story and the next three have been about Afghanistan. There's obvious obviously a degree of exuberance. They're very happy. They haven't issued an official statement yet, but two days ago, Al Qaeda. Uh, issued a, a statement which said, uh, you know, liberate the Levant, Somalia, Yemen, Kashmir, and the rest of the Islamic lands from the enemies of Islam. So you can see, of course, this, you know, they are taking note and without question, they hope that they too one day might be able to outweigh the international deployment and potentially uh, capture power. Uh, I would say just very quickly on the point you raised about Afghanistan, Alan, I've been struck by the coverage, and maybe this is also a controversial point. A lot of the coverage has focused on what will life be like for Afghanistan and for Afghans in the days after the Taliban captures power. I think an important question not to lose sight of is what was life like for Afghans under under the, the Western-supported government, the internationally-supported government, and during the war. And I think this comes to Mary's point about the, the what kind of governance do these governments that receive massive amounts of foreign aid, uh, what kind of governance is the Somali government giving its people today? And that gives you a clue as to how long it would survive if 
if this um, external support, including military support, was pulled out. And I think that's the conversation people need to have. Um, it's, it's almost acting as if you have a government, but in reality, what you have is a small elite that's benefiting from these millions and millions of unconditional aid that's flowing in and therefore have no incentive to offer services to the people, which is why even though life can be quite harsh in the Al-Shabaab-controlled areas, um, you have predictability, you have peace, um, and, and you know, you have a degree of governance that, that may be very crude, um, but also that delivers. And I think that's the conversation people need to have. How are regional leaders looking at this? Again, I'll, I'll twin this point with what happens next. I would say that if Al-Shabaab can demonstrate um, that it does not still, as its propaganda likes to pump out, aim to engage in irredentist wars. It does not seek, um, you know, to, to try and take back Djibouti, Somaliland, um, the Ogaden region, northern Kenya, you know, which is not really a very realistic goal. If that could be diffused, then regional leaders that remain the most hostile to the idea of talks with Al-Shabaab might soften. I remember in the late 2000s, it was the Americans that were adamantly opposed to any uh, prospect of rapprochement, especially in the age when uh, Sheikh Sharif Ahmed was president. He was the former head of the Islamic uh, Courts Union. It might have been possible to do a deal then. Now Al-Shabaab is very strong. It might be harder to do a deal, but it's hard to see how you stabilize Somalia without looking for an off-ramp that must involve talks with a group that's as formidable as Al-Shabaab. Mm. Yeah, I've also been struck by the the coverage out of Afghanistan. And, you know, there hasn't been much coverage of how life might be changing for rural Afghans where the civil war actually took place. And the fact that that civil war in Afghanistan, you know, that's waged for 20 years uh, might now be ending, you know, and that, that hasn't received nearly as much focus. And you could easily see parallels with that, I think, with Somalia as well. Um, uh, Michael, I want to I want to go over to you. Um, you know, you, you mentioned in, in your last comments uh, that in some ways the frame of the war on terror, you know, has already been shifting in the U.S., you know, even before Afghanistan and the sort of weight that that takes. If we're entering sort of a new phase, you know, of, of U.S. engagement in this region, how would you characterize that that, that phase? And, and, you know, in, in what ways do you think Afghanistan accelerates that? Yeah, well, maybe I could just talk a little bit about uh, sort of the, sh the shadow of Afghanistan uh, in the Horn of Africa and sort of how how it may or may not sort of impact uh, the international community's sort of calculations, uh, particularly on a on a on a situation on the situation in Somalia. I mean, I think you know, as you all well know, I mean, there's a lot of debate and back and forth right now about you know it's, it's you know it's called the Somalia transition plan, sort of what to do with with Amisom, and you know I could really see sort of the situation or the recent developments in Afghanistan playing out in two ways. I mean, on the one hand, I think it, it's, it's a note of caution uh, to uh, the international community, Somalia's sort of Western partners about sort of the dangers of, of exiting too quickly, too precipitously, drawing down Amazon in too rapid a fashion. You know, on the other hand, you know, if the Taliban is able to is able to sort of normalize its relationship uh, with with the rest of the world and sort of be, quote unquote, a sort of responsible player in the international system, it's not sort of a security problem for its neighbors and the rest of the world, then there may be more willingness, you know, to draw down in Somalia more quickly, 
and you know, frankly, um, sort of paved the way uh, for you know for Al Shabaab to make gains and maybe even recapture or capture the state, possibly, right? So I could I could see. I'm not sure how it's going to shake out, um, what the impact of, of developments in Afghanistan will be, but I, I think it could move in, in very different ways depending on on how things play out. Um, sort of where is where is sort of U.S. Western policy going now? It's hard to say. Obviously, counterterrorism still is uh, a concern. So I don't I don't want to suggest that it's not. But I mean, you obviously are, are, are all aware of, you know, discussions around, you know, again, quote unquote, you know, great power competition and, um, you know, the challenges that, um, you know, China, Russia uh, pose from the perspective of, of Western countries uh, in the horn. So I think that's that's one frame that will be relevant. And the risk there, of course, um, is that, you know, if that becomes the frame for Western engagement in the horn, then you are kind of perpetuating or creating the same pathologies of engagement uh, with countries in the region that existed in the war on terror. That is putting aside really essential questions of democracy and governance in pursuit of these broader security interests. Um, you know, but I do say, I, I would say that we are at a moment in which, um, and Ethiopia, I think, is, is an example of this, where it has become more possible for the United States and its partners to really engage robustly on humanitarian issues, human rights, governance, uh, because we're sort of in a space where uh, counterterrorism is not the priority, but we haven't fully transitioned to, to a sort of great power uh, competition frame. And there's now space for getting at these, I guess, softer, less securitized uh, issues and interests. Um, and, and I think that's that's important, but we'll see how it shakes out. Okay, everyone, you know, this has been a, an incredibly rich discussion. I think I'm going to close things out by posing uh, the same question to to all three of you and and asking, you know, what might a better approach, you know, both from the U.S. and regional governments uh, look like when it comes to, uh, you know, what, what is still a jihadism uh, threat in this region? Um, and, you know, and we've talked about a bit this some, but just final reflections on, you know, what, is there an end game here? Or, you know, is this still essentially a forever war and one that just takes a much different uh, overall tone than before? Um, so, so, Michael, I'm actually going to go back to you first on this. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, sort of two issues I'd mentioned. I mean, I think from the perspective of, of countries in the region, but, but uh, certainly its partners, international partners, I think prioritizing sort of essential questions of democracy and governance is important. I've always believed that's important, and that is I think in one way, albeit an indirect way of addressing uh, some of the underlying grievances that have fueled the terrorism problem uh, in the Horn of Africa region, much of the rest of the world. Um, and then, you know, to sort of piggyback on a point that Mariti uh, made earlier, I mean, I think uh, the terrorism problem in this part of the world really calls for, uh, at this point, some political solutions, uh, particularly when you recognize that a group like Al-Shabaab itself is rooted in some local grievances, local rivalries and dynamics. Um, and I think one unfortunate consequence of the war on terror was that these local rivalries and grievances were securitized so much that it became very difficult uh, to approach them through a political lens, right? I mean, there was a moment in the war on terror where there was sort of no, no middle ground. You're you're either for the terrorists or or you're not, right? Um, and that made it very difficult to deal with with local grievances and local groups that had aligned with these international jihadist networks, but were not really of the same stripe. Um, and so, I think political solutions are are, are really uh, what's needed, uh, as difficult as as it may may be. And and Mary, if um, if I may, if we've been getting things wrong, then what does it look like to to get things right? And do you see, um, you know, what what do you see as the end game? 
in some ways I feel more pessimistic than I felt uh, in, in, in the last uh, couple of decades about not only the future of Somalia, but about now, because of what's happening in Ethiopia, the future of the whole region. Because at the moment, the Horn of Africa has lost its rock of stability, even if it was a very authoritarian rock uh, in Ethiopia. So how that's going to play out, I, I find it, frankly, pretty terrifying. Uh, but in terms of the, the more positive um, possibilities, uh, taking a cue from, from, from Michael, I do think it's, when you look at Somalia, for example, there is much more of an appreciation internationally, regionally and locally that you can't solve this problem militarily. And Al-Shabaab, I've spent the last couple of years talking a lot to people who've left Al-Shabaab. Fair enough, they're the kind of middle-ranking and low-ranking members. But most of them, especially the low-ranking members, they didn't join Al-Shabaab for anything to do with ideology. They joined it for economic reasons, uh, principally, or fear because they were coerced or because they were bored. It was an activity. Um, so actually, their motivation is not to do with a, a hardline Islamist ideology. It's something completely different. So if it's po- if it was possible to address those issues, that's also very, very challenging, then people would probably, if they had better alternatives, they'd, they'd follow those. I, I also always look at the example of Somaliland, which is a tiny, unrecognised territory in that very, very volatile region. And Somaliland uh, has done everything from the bottom up without international assistance. And it has got a pretty well-functioning kind of semi-democratic political system. It has obviously elements of extremism in it increasingly, but it hasn't turned horribly violent. Um, It is far more stable than most other places in the region, and it's managed that on its own without much international help. So maybe there are lessons to be learned there that you take a much more localised, uh, granular approach to trying to sort out the Al-Shabaab problems. There's already more now of an emphasis on elders and other members of the community uh, getting involved in trying to bring people out of Al-Shabaab uh, and, and, and negotiate locally. So maybe if people have more faith in that rather than these big international powers coming in with their military might, that might be a, a way, a very, very slow way forward, but it might actually achieve some results that make life better for the, for the people of Somalia and the people of the whole region. Mm. Yeah, I do, I do think um, perhaps much belatedly the events in Afghanistan have have uh, zeroed everyone in on, on this question of whether or not externalized su- support in these sort of fragile states is actually something that, that can even work. Uh, Marithi, um, I, I want to give you the, the final word, um, unless anyone else wants to jump in later. Um, and, and obviously, we've been focusing a lot on the U.S. approach, which you can also do. But also, I'm wondering if you can sketch out, you know, how a regional approach might look like, uh, regardless of whether or not it's a U.S.-led war on terror. Um, you know, the, the, the region does face a risk and threat from these ideologies. And, you know, and, and what would be a better approach going forward? And, and, and where do you see this heading? In terms of the region, two things. One is that, of course, there will have to be a security component to this that calls for very significant cooperation. On paper, there's cooperation, there's the IGAD uh, Counterterrorism Center for Excellence, but 
uh, in practice, these remain very siloed national um, approaches. And the, the truth is that the militants are incredibly adaptive. Um, when they came under pressure, when a lot of uh, Kenyan recruits, for example, returned uh, to Kenya and, and then came under security pressure, a lot of them moved to Tanzania. In Tanzania, when the mix of East Africans came under pressure from the authorities, they moved over to Mozambique and found very accommodative nodes in which they could operate. Um, I think the authorities have to be uh, as adaptive as the militants have shown them to be. I think the final point I would make is that as we've heard from Mary and, and Michael, some of the recruitment is based on grievances. Not all of it, some of it is ideological, uh, but very substantial parts of it come from um, a, a sense of marginalization, a sense that elites in distant capitals don't really care. And so you find that Al-Shabaab is very adept at recruiting from minority clans that are not really involved in governance arrangements. In Kenya, we saw very substantial recruitment in Northern Kenya and at the coast where there were long-standing economic and political grievances, the same in southern Tanzania and partly in Zanzibar as well. I would say that what we've seen to a degree in Kenya and maybe in the Sahel in Niger is that decentralization might be a prescription that works in places that this is practicable. And so Al-Shabaab recruitment, for example, on the Kenyan coast was once sky high. Now it's very low partly because Kenya adopted that constitution in 2010 uh, that gradually uh, dispersed power and resources in very substantial ways, in ways that then uh, you could have local authorities that enjoy greater trust than those at the national level. I think in particular, Tanzania might benefit from this. Northern Mozambique could be um, addressed if you, you really give power and resources to the locals. And, and so I think you have, of course, to have a security component, but the lesson we've learned over the last two decades is that it alone does not work and it has to be accompanied by a very substantial political strategy. Mm. And Marithi, I'm actually going to uh, take my prerogative as the, <laughs> as the host and ask you one quick follow-up, which is the other component, of course, that often gets talked about and that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is, is, is dialogue um, with Al-Shabaab. I'm wondering if you see any potential regional support for dialogue with Al-Shabaab after, you know, this long deployment of Amazon. I would say that we need to watch the next election. Um, if there's, there's an election that brings a government that can uh, uh, cohere nationally, that might be able to work with the federal member states, um, there is appetite, for example, from Doha, uh, given its, its relative success, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, um, that it might want to facilitate those talks. And Doha wisely has been reaching out uh, to the various regional capitals, particularly Nairobi. Um, I would say that Kenya and Ethiopia will remain anxious. Um, I would say that the securocrats sometimes overstate the threat of greater Somalia expansionism. Um, you know, I remember a Kenyan uh, officer telling me that there's a reason that the Somali flag is five-pointed. You know, they will eventually try and, and, and cause trouble regionally. I would say this is an overstated um, uh, anxiety. I think people have to be more pragmatic. You cannot have a perpetual Amisom deployment. Michael was right to say that precipitous withdrawal would also potentially be problematic, but people have to look for a middle ground, and that middle ground inevitably will involve dialogue. Thanks, everyone, for, for such a fascinating discussion. Thank you all. 
Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening. Once again, The Horn is a podcast from the International Crisis Group, and this special summer series is produced in partnership with the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. As a final note, since this in some ways closes out this season two of the podcast, I need to acknowledge the colleagues in the Horn of Africa team and from our headquarters in Brussels who help us bring you this podcast every couple weeks. Um, And a special thanks to Marithi Mutiga, one of our panelists today, who is very active behind the scenes in every episode. The quality of guests and discussion we aim to bring is very much a product of his dedication and support as well. And thanks also, of course, to you, our listeners. We always love to hear from you. Drop me a note at aboswell at crisisgroup.org or on Twitter at Alan Boswell. We'll be back soon with more. This episode was produced by Maeve Francis and Ida Holly Nambi.